0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and you're listening to part four of our mini-series on diagnostics and detection, supported by Zymo Research. In this episode, we'll zero in on environmental surveillance for COVID-19. Joining me today to explore this topic is Michael Lisek. Project Manager of Environmental Microbiomics at Zymo Research Corp. Hi, Michael. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Hi, Tristan. It's great to be here. So today we will discuss the techniques involved in environmental sequencing and their comparative benefits. So the benefits of, let's say,
1: real-time QPCR is that we can accurately quantify the amount of SARS-CoV-2 present in a particular sample type. If they want to look at uh, different variants or, or strains of COVID, which has been sort of an emerging question, we've we've turned to next-gen sequencing.
0: We'll explore the benefits of environmental over-clinical sequencing for managing a pandemic.
1: Yeah, and some of the main challenges with clinical is are, are those sort of delays. So people won't necessarily get tested right away. They'll incubate the virus for one to two weeks before they actually seek uh, a doctor to get tested. It's, it's a time lag for clinical, whereas wastewater environmental testing is a lot more real time.
0: Reveal some of the challenges of working in an emerging field. It's considered the Wild West in terms of, of
1: environmental studying. It's, it's a lot of the, the labs sort of taking on that initiative themselves. It's not really been uh, effectively communicated from uh, government.
0: And we'll take a look at the real-world impacts of environmental sequencing on disease control. We've noticed an immediate drop in the level of active cases um, as a result. So um, firstly, Michael, please can you introduce us to environmental surveillance for infectious diseases? Um, So what does this usually entail? Yeah, so traditionally in, I would say, let's look at before covid we would predominantly look at, let's say
1: fecal indicators, which are things such as enteric viruses, enteric bacteria, things that uh, generally come from fecal contamination. Um, so when we're looking at these sort of organisms in the, in the water, we're just looking for generic uh, bacteria that are potentially harmful to, let's say uh, a general population. Um, but now with the sort of emergence of sars cov 2 we kind of had to shift gears to think, okay, well, this is something that can, uh, You know, has a much higher rate of infection and can spread much more rapidly through a given population. So the the typical testing that would go into the diagnostics for looking at previously for let's say uh, enteric fecal indicators were much more passive culture based tests. So we would um, typically just have a fluorescence indicator, and it was more of a binary: is this organism present? Uh, But now with sort of SARS-CoV two, there they've we've had a streamlined testing effort. So a lot more urge and haste has gone into these sort of testing parameters. So for instance, our group looks at both real-time qPCR and, and next-gen sequencing to determine um, these sort of emerging infectious diseases, at least for, for COVID-19.
0: And have you ever worked on a disease outbreak like this um, in a similar setting? And what's what the, the difference between the, the COVID-19 outbreak and uh, any previous work that you've done been like in terms of that more urgent and, and rapid timing?
1: Yeah, so in, in previous past, uh, like I said, we'd look at uh, fecal indicators, which, which are a lot more slow moving. Um, but now with this sort of urge and haste, we have to relay that information much quicker to let's say, uh, public health departments, uh, just to get a general sense of, of, of tracking overall case estimation levels, um, which we can do with with COVID just to see overall uh, trends in case estimates and and determine the overall abundance that we see in uh, environmental levels for, for for COVID-19.
0: What were some of those diseases that you'd worked on? Um, so we'd look at norovirus,
1: uh, just typical salmonella, E. coli. Um, and, and like I said, these are, these are a lot more slow moving, whereas, whereas SARS-CoV-2 has a higher rate of, of infection.
0: Um, and, and how has that previous work sort of prepared you for the work that you've done with with COVID-19? Um, and, and what kind of techniques have you pulled through to, to study on COVID and, and how have they been applied? Yeah, so I would say the main
1: benefit to having previously worked with some of those organisms is that now we have that infrastructure to pivot and shift gears to focus on COVID-19 a lot more readily. So some of the techniques were real-time QPCR and uh, next-gen sequencing. So prior, we haven't used that as much for uh, fecal indicators, but we have the infrastructure ready. Um, so at least in, in the example of SARS-CoV-2, when we needed to pivot quickly, um, we were just able to uh, rapidly adapt. So the benefits of, let's say, real-time QPCR for a diagnostic test is that we can accurately quantify the amount of SARS-CoV-2 present in a particular sample type. So for environmental, let's say, typically, groups will want to look at wastewater. Um, and the reason being wastewater is that it uh, is a shed or a pool from a, a conglomerate of different groups, industries, uh, residential areas. So it's a lot more indicative of, of the overall the overall abundance. It, it gives you a lot more stability and, and confidence in, in what you're reporting, as opposed to, let's say, if we look at clinical, where we're, we're doing individual tests. So the reason groups want to do monitoring on environmental and more focus of uh, wastewater is that uh, we can sort of uh, scale up the testing. Um, So that's real-time qPCR, and we're looking at N1 and N2 targets uh, for uh, that PCR method. But some groups, if they want to look at uh, different variants or or
0: strains of COVID, which has been sort of an emerging question, we've we've turned to next-gen sequencing. So um, the, the wastewater surveillance kind of allows you to monitor the the full spectrum of a population as opposed to necessarily those who have just got tested through sort of clinical testing, clinical samples like that. Yeah. And some of the main challenges with
1: clinical is are, are those sort of delays. So people won't necessarily get tested right away. They'll, um, you know, they'll incubate the virus for one to two weeks before they actually seek uh, a doctor to get tested. And by that time, they've been shedding the virus in their fecal um, for, uh, since the onset of their actual, um, when they contracted the virus. So that, in that sense, it's, it's a time lag for clinical, whereas wastewater environmental testing is a lot more real time, um,
0: and it can scale up, like I said. So if you're looking at a region a lot more quicker than individual clinical samples. Um, what are some of the challenges associated with this kind of testing? I imagine the samples that you um, obtain from this are, are much more difficult to deal with than sort of nice clean clinical samples
1: yeah it's so it i break it down into essentially three challenges wastewater is substantially more difficult um for detection of these pathogens and let's say clinical solves because there are the uh problems with um low low covid abundance or whatever infectious disease you're looking for in wastewater it because it's such a dilute um, sample type or environmental sample type for that matter um, so because it's susceptible to dilution, I kind of liken it to finding a needle in a haystack. Um, so our downstream methods, whether that be real-time PCR or, or next-gen sequencing, uh, need to be highly selective. And, and also there has to be a lot more confidence in sort of what we're looking for. We have to have those limits of detection really, really uh, streamlined to ensure that we're actually getting what we're reporting. Um, so the other challenges are just, once we have that information, how do we present that back to public health departments in a usable manner, where they can effectively take protocols or or look to quell or suppress the virus, uh, which has been sort of a a pain point and challenge? But likewise, the uh, with waste, wastewater being such a, a highly dense uh, bioorganic um, uh, sample type and and environmental sample types for that matter, they just are a composite of the viral genome. So. Uh, we're getting samples from, you know, all, all over a, a region. They, it, it mixes together and it becomes very difficult to identify certain um, data sets that the public health would, would like to see, such as whole genome analysis, which becomes very tr- tricky when trying to sort of jumble up and, and analyze the data. Um, so we are able to do certain things, but not necessarily to the
0: extent that uh, public health believes that they would need. So what are the reasons that the, the sort of full genome analysis is, is more difficult? Is it that the sort of the RNA fragments in those samples are more fragmented? or Yeah, typically in the environmental samples,
1: the, the RNA is substantially more fragmented as opposed to clinical. And, and when we're on that, on that subject, uh, a patient will come in with, with their, you know, their swab or their oral phalangeal, however they get tested. Um, we're we're under the assumption that they have one strain or, or one or two, sometimes two, which is highly rare, but in an environmental sample type, it is that conglomerate. So we're looking at uh, uh, an assortment of different abundances of different variants. Um, so it, it becomes real challenge to really track and uh, identify those whole genomes. But I, what I can say, what we can do is we're able to monitor certain mutations or SNPs uh, based on the sequencing data and ascertain a level of confidence that uh, we see based on this proportion of mutations that we have uh, X, Y, and Z, or uh, at least in the example of uh, California in Southern California, we've seen variants such as B.1.429, um, which is a, a typical co- uh, waste, uh, a typical California strain. Um, we haven't seen strains such as B.117, such as uh, the UK variants. Uh, we've seen a predominant um, majority of the California strain in our environmental sample types. So essentially that's, it's good to signify that um, we have a higher abundance of those as opposed to foreign strains. Um, so that's where we really need that kind of clinical data as well in which I say, we kind of need a, a merge of, in two fronts to kind of tackle this, this
0: virus. So, whilst the clinical data can probably allow you to do more thorough um, sort of next-generation sequencing and whole genome sequencing, the um, wastewater surveillance and the environmental surveillance gives you a broader sort of perspective on on what the scene is looking like in terms of the variants you're getting. Um, and, and so, would you say that because you have quite a high abundance of that that California strain, um, but few others, that kind of indicates that transmission that's happening in the Californian community? Is kind of staying within California and only happening between those those residents? Yeah, we can essentially
1: make those uh, those rough correlations. So the goal with, I would say with let's if we take wastewater, for example, if we see that over time the the trend starts to shift, that's where we can make certain assumptions such as vaccine escape. If we start to see certain variants like the the Brazilian strain p one or maybe the South African strain, if they those start to show mutations and higher abundance, that's when we can raise a flag and say, look, we're shifting from our typical background noise where we just have uh, the California uh, strain B uh, 419, Um, and, and we're starting to see these, these rise in additional mutations. So that's where um, the sort of benefit lies.
0: So you, you've just touched on it there, but you've talked about the, uh, the sort of variations that you'd be looking for. Um, so obviously, as you as you said in the UK, we've got the B one one seven variant, which was um, I think that was actually p- detected through um, clinical samples. Um, but you're scanning y- using the um, environmental sequencing to look for things like vaccine escape. Um, how would you scan for that in the environmental samples? How would you go about um, observing that? Right. So so like I kind of detailed, we we do have um, the variant
1: mutations for each. Of the known strains on record, and we have that in our uh, our get to two, It's our sequencing folder and how we analyze the data. Um, and if we see a shift in the uh, mutations associated with that strain, so if we take B. Point one one seven, um, so we haven't seen that of yet of of neg of abundant proportion. So it could potentially be there. However, it's not insignificant um, portion. So what we can safely assume is if after a time, it starts to increase in uh, several of those mutation sites, um, over time, we can say that, look, uh, there's the potential that with this increase in relative mutation, there's the likelihood that there has been vaccine escape for these
0: uh, strains if they're not sort of at that, those levels that were typical background noise. So do you think that you'd be able to determine whether the sort of acquisition of those mutated variants uh, in your, your samples um, was as a result of progressive mutations and, and evolutions essentially of the viral variants currently present in California, or if they were as a result of people coming from the UK or coming from Brazil and, and carrying with them those variants to California?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So what, what I can say with certain is if we look at general regional uh, variants, so like, like I took B.1419, for example, um, we are able to ascertain that based on those mutations, is, it is within a localized region, and most likely it wouldn't have mutated uh, an additional time outside of, let's say, California in um, the UK, and then uh, came back to the United States. Um, whereas uh, if it's a UK strain based on uh, a hallmarker of certain traits, we are able to determine that that it came inbound as opposed to mutating here, um, which is highly unlikely for a virus to have the same mutations. Um, one, have it mutate in UK and then come here as opposed to originating here as the California strain and then
0: um, mutating
1: to the uh, uk strain
0: okay um and when you're when you're analyzing the samples um do you find that there are any advantages to using sort of pcr based um, applications to to analyze them or next generation sequencing focus applications yeah so for let's take pcr
1: based um, it is uh the turnaround time for pcr is a little bit quicker than next gen sequencing it, it is a little more time-inducive in from the um from both the target amplification to the library prep to the sequencing itself, and then abstracting that data in terms of variant calling and and ascertaining those mutations with confidence. Uh, We're looking at maybe a two to three uh, day time lag behind PCR data. So that one of the benefits if you're just looking for the COVID concentration, which is a a proxy or indicator for the um, number of of COVID cases in an area. it's, It's a lot more efficient if we're just looking at PCR and we can determine essentially how the the virus is uh, propagating or um, sustaining at similar or plateauing in an area. It's it's a lot more efficient and streamlined with with PCR, but we
0: do get those added advantages with next-gen sequencing such as variance um, detection. Um, and when you're using those um, those techniques on these wastewater samples, do you, do you have any um, advice or tips for um, sort of best practice in, in using those techniques with these samples?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the main I, I would start from sample collection because that's huge. Um, we found that processing between five to 50 ml, uh, concentrating that down effectively in, in an enrichment strat, um, uh, protocol. Uh, whether that be through filtration or some sort of precipitating reagent, allows for the most uh, enriched sample to go into your, your PCR or even your next-gen sequencing application. Because like I, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, that the low COVID abundance makes this like finding a needle in a haystack. So that sample collection and concentration step is is really crucial. But when it comes to the actual technique and assay itself, a lot of the reagents themselves are are, are fairly uh, unstable and they need to be kept on, on ice uh, as, as long as possible just because uh, we are working with highly sensitive RNA so it can fragment relatively quickly um, considerably more than than when it originally was, was uh, concentrated and purified out. Um, so there is that sort of ease and uh, necessity for, for good handling skills um, when working with them um, but likewise uh, just making sure that you uh, you're in contact with sort of the recommended guidelines that the CDC provides. So they recommend targeting sites such as N1, N2, and E SARBECO for um, gene targets, which are just they're very highly characterized and um, have been sort of the the hallmarkers for for this testing.
0: So we've covered a few of the challenges there, um, and you've also just given me um, a few tips about how how you conduct these. Um... The de- de- sequencing applications and PCR applications um, to the to the best of their ability. So, so what are the the real benefits of using um, wastewater surveillance and environmental surveillance uh, for managing a pandemic? Yeah. So, and and I can relate this to um, what what
1: we've seen in overall trends here. We didn't implement, let's say, the right and proper precautions for social distancing right around the holidays. Um, And we noticed as a result that we had a a surge in uh, COVID concentration levels for the N1 and N2 targets here in Southern California, uh, whether that be localized around LA or or here um, down in Irvine. Um, So essentially with that, uh, we can use that as a a pre-election or for the next time when there's a potential outbreak that look, based on what we saw, we didn't implement the right policies. um, If we would like to limit the spread of this infectious disease or virus, Um, essentially now we're better prepared for sort of the ramifications of not doing so. And we can look at, you know, hospital admittance data um, in conjunction with the the wastewater um, testing we've done. So it it essentially prepares us better for the future now that we have this testing, this infrastructure up. Um, And and likewise, in parallel, when we have uh, this next-gen sequencing uh, system up, we can not only detect variants of, let's say COVID, but moving forward, we can also identify and flag unknown species. So in the future, let's say before uh, an additional rise of, of um, let's say whatever the next pandemic might be and you know, God forbid that happens, um, there's the likelihood that, that something uh, else will come up, we can immediately flag unknown species. Um, so it's that general sense that before
0: a spread even happens, we can uh, look to stop it. In your current work, are there any um, trends that you can comment on at the moment that you've observed using this wastewater surveillance um, that you've then been able to pass on to the, sort of the, the authorities? So, if, if we look down here um, in, in LA County,
1: we've seen that, uh, like I said before, we had an N1 and N2 concentration surge. Um, so, those are the recommended targets by the CDC. Um, and we relayed that to to public health, uh, at least the CDPH, and and we saw that they took preventative measures after the holidays to ensure that we continued practicing social distancing policies. And and sort of on on the blip, we've noticed an immediate drop in cases, the level of of, of new active cases um, as a result. So there there has been a, a sort of that there was a two week stagflation, but. We we have really uh, taken those those next uh, steps to ensure that we suppress the virus as quickly as possible.
0: And is there there also a case to be made that as we've talked about, you can track the development of um, of any mutations or, or any variants? Would would you have been observing a increased rate of mutation in those wastewater samples before when there were the higher rates? of um, coronavirus observed in the samples? And do and you see a, a reduced rate of mutation after that tightening of, of social distancing? So, so that is a, a great uh, sort of, uh, it's
1: almost a research question. Um, we actually, just because this technology is so novel right now, implementing COVID sequencing for wastewater, uh, we, we have about a, a month's worth of, of data essentially. Um, but what we can say is that prior to sort of the like you said, when there was a sort of a rise in cases, how the mutation levels would have been changing. We can attest to how uh, much more readily the, the virus would have been mutating. Um, but just based on my general sense of knowledge, as uh, if we look holistically top down and, and see how uh, the virus was in fact transmitting itself on the individual scale basis and the number of active cases in this area, with some confidence that with each cycle the virus passes between hosts that there would be un- unaccounted for mutations um some for good and as in uh the virus loses that transfect uh, transfection capabilities but some for even worse as in where their potential spike proteins make it more likely they, they will infect uh, additional hosts um that's just a general but we, we don't have that uh, sort of research to look from prior to, to now where we have that, that drop in cases,
0: which would be a, a really cool thing to look at how the, the virus has changed in mutation rates. I, I suppose as the, um, as the vaccines get rolled out, that's kind of the the next really big thing to start addressing, I suppose, is yeah, the, are those variants developing at a high rate now that they're coming across these, um, sort of strong immune responses to them? Uh, and, and will they, will they escape? Um, uh, which is, I think probably the thing that's concerning most people at the moment. Do, do you have any, um, sort of plans to start monitoring in that kind of way, or is it, um, yeah, we've, kind of we've already started, we've already started that monitoring. And, and like I said, um, we've
1: we predominantly seen the localized California strains. Um, so our intent is to look and see how mutations might arise over time and with, with abundance are these these additional variants changing um, because that's where the concern, we, we already know that uh, several of the vaccines, whether that be Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca, uh, they are susceptible to some of the Brazilian uh, strain or even the South African strains, uh, which aren't as
0: effective in, in preventing the, the transmission rates. Looking sort of towards the future slightly, um, are there any sort of emerging techniques in in next-gen sequencing um, or in PCR technologies that you find um, particularly exciting or that you think are going to have a particularly big impact on the future of wastewater surveillance?
1: Yeah, I I think I mentioned it before, but being able to flag certain unknown uh, genomes which we can do with next-gen sequencing is going to be crucial. Um, so that's where a uh, uh, sort of the now that we have the infrastructure moving forward, just uh, continuing to monitor these sites uh, for, for the next uh, unknown uh, organism and, and see how the abundance of that changes over time. Um, for PCR based, that, that will predominantly uh, lag. Essentially, we'd, we'd still have to have a, a known uh, organism and have that genome be, be characterized uh, before we can uh, quantify and, and make those sort of. Uh, predictions on, on the, the level of or the prevalence of a certain um, uh, infectious organism. But with next-gen sequencing, uh, that's sort of that we can look at overall trends before it even happens. So the, the essential uh, next steps would be to have these sort of um, passive monitoring systems in place where uh, sanita- both sanitation districts, maybe hospitals, subways, uh, all these high traffic areas are sort of linked to uh, a central lab where, where their water... Or their environmental sample type is is being constantly monitored to look for background noise of what's an acceptable amount of let's say like I mentioned before fecal indicators um, uh, norovirus all all these all these strains of of organisms what's what's an acceptable level um, before something else emerges.
0: In in your region, is there uh, what's the kind of structure of the wastewater surveillance? Are there key locations that you're um, surveilling from, or are you very much doing it from different areas? Um, what's the kind of uh, the formula for it? Yeah, so this has been uh, kind of the the question
1: of of the the year, I would say, because this a, a lot of this information needed to be communicated top down from uh, the the local state government and uh, public health departments because these are sort of the areas that they would have liked monitored. However, there's sort of been a, a gap in knowledge of, of what they would like to see. So it's essentially been on, you know, nonprofit labs, uh, our our lab in this case, uh, for-profit, just uh, looking to see where we can add the most value um, and, and testing these certain locations. So we've done a lot of locations pro bono. So LA being a huge high traffic area, we've tried to look at areas such as hospitals or even Uh, sanitation districts where the the water is collected from the the most essentially the most amount of individuals that we can look to quantify and ascertain what's what's happening in that that general region but as for an overall sense of what labs are participating uh, additional areas what are the the parameters or, or areas that are the most crucial we should monitor that that hasn't been coordinated effectively or communicated down and that essentially stems down from. Uh, I, I'm going to c- uh, compare it to an analogy. It's it's considered the Wild West in terms of, of environmental studying. It's it's a lot of the the labs sort of taking on that initiative themselves. It's not really been uh, effectively communicated from uh, government or local public
0: health board authority officials. So it's more a case of um, an individual lab saying, "Okay, we think if we sample um, from this hospital, we're going to collect the the uh, most representative or the the most valuable sele- selection of um, of samples that we can." Um, do Do you think that maybe that's that's work that needs to be done in preparation for next pandemic? Is is to find those sort of optimal sites to sample from to make sure that you're collecting the most representative sample of your your city or your um, your county or your your state even? Yeah, most definitely. These sort of uh, infrastructural
1: questions to uh, monitor areas are, are are definitely needed moving forward, um, because, like you kind of alluded to, there we we don't know what's coming next. Uh, hopefully, this this won't be in our lifetime, but um, just just based on you know what we've seen in years past, every decade or so, there's something new, whether it be Zika virus, Ebola virus. Uh, there there's something to Always look for in terms of infectious diseases. So having that sort of knowledge of of what sites and areas would be the most representative of whole regions would be crucial.
0: Well, while it's definitely concerning that these new threats seem to be emerging at a fairly consistent pace, um, hopefully with these kind of learnings uh, from this pandemic, we'll be much better prepared, and we can get these preparatory studies conducted and the infrastructures implemented um, in time to deal with the the next one that arises. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Take care, Tristan. Let me know your thoughts on today's episode at CyTristan on Twitter, where you can also get in touch if you have any suggestions for topics you think we should cover in future episodes. You can find Talking Techniques on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or look for the podcast section on our website at www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.